You're listening to New City's Sermon Podcast. We hope you're empowered and challenged as we root deep in God's Word in order that we might grow in the good news of King Jesus and live as faithful citizens of His kingdom right here in our city. Let's get into the scriptures now. New City and Holy City, I think you guys know that Pastor Juan and I are are good friends. We spend time together, uh, have lunch together, joke around together. He's a dear friend of mine, and so I'm super glad that you guys are here this morning with us. And we came to your place a year ago and had a joint service out of Holy City. And we made a promise to you last year that though both of us were preaching, we were not going to do 45-minute sermons each. And we make that promise to you again this morning. Uh, We're going to explore this phrase, the thrill of hope. We're going to be looking at Isaiah 7, which we read at the beginning of service, and Luke 2. And we'll each just give kind of a short sermon to encourage you and stir up the thrill of hope in you that Jesus has come for you and he's coming again. And so um, I'm going to pray for us and then I'm going to read Emmanuel from Isaiah 7. Juan's going to read Luke 2 and then he's going to share first and then I'll come back up and, and share as well. So would you just pray with me? Lord, we, we pray for your spirit to move through your word. Uh, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so we come again just to sit in your word and ask you to shape us as we explore it. That you would make us better servants of Jesus Christ. That you would help us to understand more deeply the love of God in Jesus Christ. That we might be thrilled with hope that Christ has come. Be with Pastor Juan as he preaches now. Fill him with your spirit. I ask the same for me. We are both needy men who need your grace, and who need your forgiveness, and who need your power. And I pray that as we sit in this text, you would change us all and remind us of the greatness of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Here's Isaiah 7, uh, a prophecy that says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. Amen. I'm going to be reading out of Luke chapter 2, and I'm just going to go through uh, verses 1 through 10. And then uh, John's going to unpack that a little bit. John kind of cheated a little bit because he's supposed to have you know, 20 minutes or so, but then he had like that little introduction. So that, <laughs> so that, gives, that gives me an extra five minutes. <laughs> but let me, let me read to you. And the word of the Lord says in Luke chapter 2, 1 through 10, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And so this was the first (coughs) registration with Quirinius, uh, who was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Which, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered of Mary, his betrothed, who was with child, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And so she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Amen? Amen. Amen. 
So we're gonna we're gonna kind of unravel that a little bit. I wanna I wanna kind of take a, a what John would call a macro view, a kind of a just a helicopter view of this whole thing in Luke chapter two, and we're just gonna look at the Old Testament and what that looks like and 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 the coming of the Messiah. Somebody once said that um, when you read about Jesus in the Gospels, it's not the beginning of the Gospel, but it's central to the Gospel. So it's to say that Jesus was there the whole time. So as we meditate on Luke chapter 2, we also meditate on these words from the last song that we sang together. And the song repeats this. It says, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. And so let me walk you through that idea and tie this into... Luke chapter 2. So first, let me say this. Hope may not be so thrilling for some of us. Hope may not be so thrilling for some of us. And here's what I mean. Maybe maybe you've heard someone say this before. Um, I don't want to get my hopes up. You ever heard that? Anybody ever heard that? I want to get my hopes up about this. You know, I'm not, not really sure what's going to happen here. Or, or maybe you've heard this. Maybe you even said it this morning. I really hope I win the... Lotto, right? You've heard, you've heard that before. I really hope I win the lotto. Um, or, or, or maybe it's a love hope. I really hope so-and-so loves me back. I really hope that they, they love me the way they say they do. And, and so let me just say this first. And sometimes it's the way we look at hope that becomes an issue for us. But hope is not something we do. Let me say that hope is maybe it's something we receive. And sometimes we might not look at things that way. And maybe it's much like grace, something that we receive, something that we don't deserve, but we receive it. And as we believe and we receive more faith, and as our faith grows, so do we in hope. As a matter of fact, Maxim Cato, if you heard of him, he puts it like this. Hope is not what you would expect. It is what you would never dream. It is a wild and probable tale with a... With, with a pinch-me, dreaming ending, hope is not a granted wish or a favor performed. No, it's, it's something far greater than that. It's a zany, unpredictable dependence on God who loves to surprise us out of our socks and be there in the flesh to watch it happen. Emphasis on the be there in the flesh. But this hope is not something that might happen or, or that we just wish it would happen, uh, but rather it's an expectation of what's to come. And, and can I tell you that when Jesus came to this world and he put on flesh, this hope of Jesus coming was a thrilling one for a world that was weary. And so this expectation, this hope, is seen through the Old Testament, and we can see this today. By the way, the hope that I'm talking about is a hope that does not disappoint. Romans 5, 5 says this, this hope will not lead to disappointment. But we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. In other words, we see yet again that it's not something that we do, but something we receive. And in Romans 5, something that we would receive from the Holy Spirit. And of course, Romans 5 is talking about the hope of salvation. Well, let me tell you this morning, I, for one, have this hope and gathering with you this morning in my heart that not only has Jesus come already as we meditate on that today, but that he will 
come again. And this hope, this hope is good news. Some would say great news. Uh, Luke chapter 2 verse 10 says this. This will be for all people. Right? And so if you think about the whole Bible, somebody once said, um, I get it. I, I, I read the Bible, but what does the word even mean? Right? We sometimes don't stop to kind of think about what does the word Bible mean? In case you're wondering, it's, it's Biblos, Biblioteca, like we say in Spanish. It's a collection of books, 66 books. But somebody said, what is the purpose of the Bible? So if you had to give it kind of one major theme, and it said that the whole purpose from beginning to end of the Bible is the reconciliation of God and man. From the moment that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, we start to see this hope, this thrilling hope that we're talking about. As a matter of fact, Eve was promised that a male descendant from her line would crush the head of the serpent. Almost immediately, as they sin in the garden, we see for the very first time what we would call in theology the proto-evangelium, which is the first scene of the good news, the first scene of the gospel. And it's Genesis 3.15, and here's what it says. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So let me talk to you about the thrilling hope to a weary world, and as we hear about it before in Jesus. A man by the name of Alfred Edersheim noted that in some 558 rabbinic writings in pre-Christian times, there were 456 separate Old Testament or Tanakh passages used to refer to the Messiah or to Messianic times. So you got to understand that when Jesus comes, there's this long-awaited coming of the Lord, and some are not even sure that it's him. And that's why we see the story of the wise men as they see the star, and they're sure that it's him, and they even ask, where is this prophecy son that's been born? So let me, let me break this down for you so we kind of get a, a, a big view of Jesus in the Old Testament leading up to what John's going to talk about. There's a direct Messianic prophecies. Um, another five times from the times both prior to and during the Davidic period, he's seen in 1 Samuel as the anointed one, 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. He's seen as the faithful priest in 1 Samuel 2. But the most outstanding text by far is the Davidic text found in 2 Samuel and elaborated on Psalms 132, which pointed to the dynasty, the house of David, as the place where God would originate his throne, his dynasty, and kingdom forever. So the promise given to King David was so astounding that David cried out in 2 Samuel and said that this is the law and the character for all humanity. In other words, God had just now conferred on David an enlargement of the promise he had originally made with the patriarchs. There's, there's not enough space to relate. Think about Psalms 11, how it celebrates the person and the work of the coming of Messiah. But even though he would be rejected in Psalms 118 and betrayed in Psalms 69 and 109, and he would die and be resurrected in Psalms 22 
and 16. He would come as conqueror and enthroned ruler in Psalms 2 and 1 and 10. And he would be a planner and a groom in Psalms 40 and 45. And finally, a triumphant king in Psalms 68 and 72. And if that's not enough, in addition to the previous 15 direct references to the coming of the Messiah, there are some 39 predictions of the Messiah in the Old Testament prophets. A sample of those announcements before they happened would include these facts. First, it was predicted that Messiah would be born of a virgin. We see that in Isaiah 7, 14. Uh, we see that, of course, happening in Matthew 1, His birthplace would be in Bethlehem. That was also predicted in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And we see that come to reality in Matthew 2, 1 through 6. And not only that, but that John the Baptist, his own cousin, would be his forerunner. And we see that in Isaiah 40, 3 and 5, uh, Malachi 3 and 1. And we see how that comes to fruition in Matthew 3 and Mark 1 and Luke 3. So it was further announced uh, ahead of time that Messiah would enter Jerusalem. What turned out to be Palm Sunday. In triumph as the crowd shouted, Hosanna. Glory in the highest. We see that in Zacharias 9, Psalms 118, uh, and then we see that come to fruition in Matthew 21. But in less than a week, he would be betrayed by one of his own disciples. You know him by the name of Judas. And as it turned out, that was also predicted in Psalm 69, verse 25. So it also says in the Old Testament, got so specific that it says that Messiah's side would be pierced. And it says this in Zechariah 12. And in uh, John, we see that also happen. And that he would suffer ridiculously for the sins of the world. In Isaiah 53, 6, we also see this. Even more dramatically accurate was the fact that Jesus would be killed with the wicked ones. In Isaiah 53, 9. Note that the plural noun in Hebrew as he hung between two thieves. So it gets down to the specifics of Jesus' birth, of how he was born, where he was born, who he was born to, and who would call his name, and as he was crucified, how that would even happen. So here's the thing with hope. Hope may not be so thrilling for the world, but for a weary world that rejoices in the long-awaited Messiah, it definitely is. So will you thrill in hope and the expectation today as we continue to pray through this passage together? Let me pray uh, for you, and John is going to come up, and he's going to kind of tie this in together and talk a little bit about this thrill that continues. Father, um, would you continue to bless our time together today, uh, that you be glorified. And Father, there is a thrilling hope in what awaits us that has already come, and as we reflect on that, the awaiting of your Son again, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And Father, as John talks about that, Father, would you bless him, fill him with your spirit, give him grace, and that it would be for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Juan. It's just amazing how many prophecies there were that pointed specifically to Jesus. It just couldn't be anybody else that it was pointing to. And it's amazing to me that people waited 
not decades, but hundreds and hundreds of years for the Messiah to come. Wait, hundreds and hundreds of years. We have no category for that. I mean, I could get on my phone right now and order us all pizza. I'm not going to, but I could. <laughs> and the pizza could be here in 45 minutes. We can get anything we want in this society instantly. But you think about people who longing, who are longing for Jesus, the Messiah to come, had to wait hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And the expectation and the hope around that. I want you to imagine for a minute that you have tickets to a really good concert. You have tickets to a really good concert, and that concert is some months away, and the whole time you're waiting for this concert, it's in the back of your head. You're talking about it with your friends, you're waiting, you're hoping, you're expecting, your excitement is growing and growing, the rumors are, are going online about how great the show is gonna be, and then the night of the concert comes and you drive to the venue, and people are scurrying out of their cars. They're, they're ready for this concert to start, and the venue's massive. The place where the concert is happening is gigantic, and, and it, thousands and thousands of people are pouring in and waiting for this concert to start, and the excitement and the buzz is in the air, and everyone's heading to their seats, and you take your ticket stub, and you find your seat, and you're waiting for this thrilling moment when the concert's going to begin, and the band is revealed on stage. You're waiting for that moment when the lights drop and you hear the crowd wait for them, the band to come on stage and that, that moment where you see the band and the silhouettes of each person kind of walk on stage. And then the spotlight comes on and the lead singer steps up to the mic and the fireworks start and the concert starts at 100 miles an hour and everyone cheers. You're waiting for that moment. You're waiting for that thrilling moment when the band is revealed. But imagine this. Imagine if that thrilling moment never happens or you miss it somehow or you just sit in your seat and you just sit and you sit and the lights never drop and the band never comes on stage, and there's no cheer of the crowd, and there's no spotlight, and there's no singer. You've expected this thrilling moment when the band will appear, and everyone cheers, and everyone stops what they're doing and watches, but it doesn't seem to come. Luke 2 is a little bit like this. You and I know the wonder and the thrill of Jesus being born. We know of the angels coming to announce his birth. But I want you tonight to see, or today to see that from a little bit of a different perspective. The people of Israel, as Juan talked about, had been waiting expectantly for the long-awaited Messiah. They had listened to the prophecies. They had let the longing grow in their heart. They couldn't wait for the spotlight to shine on their Messiah when he arrived on the scene. They couldn't wait for him to step up to the mic and set things right in a broken world. They were longing for him to come and announce himself as their true king. They were longing for that thrilling moment when he would arrive. But here's the thing. Jesus' birth wasn't a thrilling moment to a massive crowd. It wasn't a thrilling moment to a massive crowd. He didn't have a thrilling entrance when he came on the scene. Let me, let me explain what I mean. First of all, Jesus was born on a tiny stage. 
It says that he, to fulfill prophecy, was born in the podunk town of Bethlehem, off the beaten path from Jerusalem. Bethlehem, we sing about it, O little town of Bethlehem. And the reason that we say, O little town of Bethlehem, is because Bethlehem is tiny and insignificant. And it would even be one thing if his parents were from a big city. At least they could say they were from a big city, but they're not. They're from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? So Jesus is from nowhere. He's born in nowhere. He's born onto this tiny stage where no one cares what happens in Bethlehem because people know that if God's going to do something, he's going to do it in Jerusalem. Not only was Jesus born on a tiny stage, but he was born out of the spotlight. What Luke emphasizes for us in the first part of this chapter is that Caesar Augustus is the one in power. Caesar, the king of the Roman Empire, he is in power. He's in the spotlight. He seems to be the ruler of the world. In fact, many times during that, during that day, he was called divine or the son of God or the savior of the world or the one through, through his control brought peace to the known world. And at that very moment in history, Luke wants us to know that Caesar's power is in the spotlight. He's demanding a census. He's demanding that everyone in the known world go with their family to the town that they were born in and register. And Mary, full of child, has to journey because someone told her to. Ellie's about to have a baby. If I called Chad up and I said, Chad, can you guys come over for dinner? He would say, no, probably not. Ellie's not feeling great. But can you imagine someone with so much power that he tells the whole world where to go and they have to do it so that they can register and he can tax them? What we're meant to see in this passage is that the spotlight is not on the king of kings who's coming, but on Caesar. He's the one with power. He's the one who speaks and everyone says, how high do you want us to jump? And Mary, about to have child, has to go to Bethlehem. Jesus is the true savior of the world. He's the one who will bring real peace. But in this passage, we see him as a subject to Caesar. The spotlight's not on Jesus' power. It's on Caesar's power. And that's not very thrilling. A tiny stage and no spotlight when the long-awaited Messiah arrives. Maybe there would at least be some fireworks, right? When the band comes on stage, fire and sparks and things to draw your attention. But even that, Jesus' arrival seems pretty insignificant and unthrilling. He was born surrounded by insignificance. Mary, his mother, is a pregnant teenage peasant. She's on the low end of the socioeconomic spectrum. She goes to Bethlehem to give birth to the king of kings. And you know the story. There's no room in the inn. There's no place for them to stay. And what we think that means is that uh, they get to this place and the top floor of the building is occupied. And they have to sleep downstairs where all the animals sleep. As soon as I touch dogs or cats, I have to go wash my hands. It's just my pet peeve. I can't do it. I'm a germaphobe. But I can't imagine sleeping with these animals 
And then you give birth to the king of kings, and there's no table to lay him on. There's no velvet to wrap him in. All you have is swaddling clothes and a trough that the animals eat out of. Jesus is born, but his birth is surrounded by insignificance. This is not the thrilling entrance that we would expect for the Messiah that we had waited so long for. Well, maybe, maybe he would have thrilling endorsers. If you write a book, you want to find someone who has power or influence to endorse that book. Someone writes a note and they print it on the back of the cover or on the inside jacket so that when people pick up the book, they say, oh, so-and-so endorsed this book. It must be good. It must be thrilling because the endorser is thrilling. And so maybe, maybe God would give this message of the birth of Jesus to some aristocrats, some people with power who could uh, announce it and, they, and people would have to listen. Or maybe it would be some wealthy business owners who had a lot of influence. Or maybe the priestly class, because they were religious. But no. Jesus doesn't have any thrilly, thrilling endorsers. It's just shepherds. Shepherds. More peasants in that society. Not only that, shepherds were seen as dirty and untrustworthy. I read somewhere that a shepherd's testimony wasn't admissible in a court because they were seen as untrustworthy. And yet, that is the very people who God announces the birth of Christ to. The shepherds aren't very thrilling. So if Jesus, the Lord of the universe, the long-awaited Messiah, has finally arrived to bring a thrill of hope where the weary world rejoices, why isn't it more thrilling? Why doesn't he have more of a thrilling entrance? Why doesn't he have more thrilling endorsers? Well, I think we get hope confused with hype. We are so used to hype that we get it confused with hope, and hype is different than hope. Hype can bring around a temporary sense of excitement, but hope is about a deep and lasting longing. Hype can draw people's attention to something that isn't really worthy of their attention, but hope requires us to wait for something substantial. Jesus' birth isn't about the thrill of hype. It's about the thrill of hope. And a message of true hope does not need any hype. We see the thrill of hope in the message that the angels tell these peasant shepherds. They say, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The message of hope in Jesus is for all people. The reason that this world-changing event isn't announced to people who have power or money, but to these peasant shepherds is because it truly is for all people. And how do you show that? Will you announce it to people who are on the bottom end of society? The angelic choir delivers this message to peasant shepherds because it is truly news for all people. All people. You, the people who are in our government and our city, those who sleep on the streets, your family that you're going to spend time with this weekend, your neighbors. It's for those whose banks account are empty and those for whose banks account are full. It's, it's for people from every culture, 
from every language and every status. The message of hope in Jesus is for all people. And that message is thrilling because it's good news of great joy. There have been times when the world has received bad news all at once. We all found out together about the tsunamis that hit Japan in the Indian Ocean. We found about the bad news of 9-11 and it affected the entire world. And in the past year, we've heard about hurricanes and earthquakes and fires around the globe. And the world reacted appropriately with sorrow as we got this news of bad news. But not this message. This message is for all people and is good news of great joy. For unto you, the angel says, born this day in the city of David is in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The news is good news if you understand the bad news. Many people speculate about God and who he is, and God's probably like this, and God's probably like that, but we, we miss a major fact in that discussion. And that simple fact is that God is not here. We don't talk with him face to face. We cannot touch him. We don't see him because we're separated from him. As Pastor Juan said, the Bible teaches us the reason that he's not here, the reason that he's separated from us is because all humankind has fallen into sin. We've rebelled against our creator. We've designed life as we want it rather than life as he designed it for us. And because we refuse to keep his commands. So everyone speculates about God, but the glaring reality is that he has separated himself from us because of our sinfulness. And that's bad news. But the good news that the angels have come to announce is that even though God has separated himself from mankind, God is now stepping on the scene to rescue mankind from that separation. The angels announced to the shepherds, and again they announced to us today, that the long-awaited Messiah has been born. The one who will reconcile God and man, the one who will bridge the separation between us and our creator in the city of Bethlehem, a savior, a savior for all people was born. And this savior is Christ, the long awaited Messiah. He is the anointed one prophesied in the Old Testament, but even more, he is the Lord himself. Jesus, this newborn baby, is God himself. God has come near to bridge the gap that we created because of our sin. God is no longer separate because Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when you turn away from running your life, when you repent of your sins, and when you look to Jesus in faith, you are no longer separated from God because Jesus was born for you. You are united to him through what Christ has done, and that is the most thrilling news if you know that you're a sinner, if you know that you're in great need. The message of Christmas is not about hype. It's about hope for needy, broken people living in a broken world. See, that thrilling moment of his birth is really pointing to the chilling moment of his death. Some have said that the shadow of the cross is cast onto the manger. Jesus was born to die. He didn't come to gain popularity, he came to give salvation. 
He didn't need the world to see him being born in Bethlehem because he knew that they would reject him when he went to Jerusalem to die. So he doesn't come with hype, but in weakness, in significance, and vulnerability. And for those that have the spiritual eyes to see it, it gives great hope. Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, came for you. He came to reconcile you to God by being born of the Virgin Mary, by suffering under Pontius Pilate, by being crucified, and on the third day, being raised from the dead. And if you see your great need for reconciliation with God, this story, again, afresh, brings that thrill of hope. We're not alone. Jesus, the Savior, has come, and that's thrilling. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come. We thank you that over so many years uh, you were prophesied about, and, and may we never lose that hope. So many people longed for you to come, and we get to know that you did come. We long for you to return, and we pray that you would give us a deep hope in who you are. And all God's people said. Amen. We're going to close by singing. And uh, we're going to sing together. You can stand in just a moment. But if you want to respond to the gospel, there's a couple ways that you can. One is you can just stand and sing. And the song that we're going to sing is talking about raising your hand. You can raise your hands and sing with your voice. If you want to respond with prayer, you can just meet me in the back, and I'd love to pray for you. Or if you want to stay in your seat and pray, you can do that as well. But I want to ask you just to stand right now. Let's honor the Lord Jesus and thank him for his coming.